This is the story of the biggest theft in history. The big steal of the resources of the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government. A Kremlin clique that runs the country like its own personal bank, a clique of bandits. It's also the story of how Russia is using every part of its state machinery in a war many of us don't even realize is taking place to subvert democracy worldwide. That's a clip from a podcast called The Big Steel, which is hosted by the former Newsnight presenter Gavin Esler. He's my special guest this week on The Pod 20. Gavin, since you've left the BBC, you've been a lot more outspoken. Last year, the Huffington Post reported that you said TV news should stop giving airtime to the village idiots of Brexit. Who are the village idiots of Brexit? Well, they know who they are. They absolutely know who they are. My point was this. It was a long, much longer interview than that. And I'll, t- I'll tell you what I said. I said, look, Michael Gove said the British people have had enough of experts. When Michael Gove gets a toothache... He does not go to the village idiot. He goes to a dentist. When Michael Gove gets sick, he goes to a doctor. He doesn't go to the bloke in the pub. So why is it when we have people who know how you negotiate trade treaties or who know about climate change, was my other example, we then go to somebody who doesn't know anything about it, who has an opinion about it, but it is not based on any facts or any knowledge. And I said that would be the equivalent of interviewing the village idiot. So that's, that was how it, how it came about. It was somewhat truncated in the version that was uh, printed. But, that, but the, the basic point remains the same. We have more Nobel Prizes in one college in Cambridge University than all of China. We are a very, very, very bright country with lots of really smart people. But I would suggest to you politely that we don't have all the best geniuses actually running our government. Is it an issue with particularly the BBC and their obsession with balance that they try to portray that every argument has two sides when sometimes one side of the argument is an argument and the other side of the argument is someone who's back crazy? They give the same credibility to, in your words, the village idiot. Well, when I started in Northern Ireland as a journalist, balance was you'd have a unionist and a nationalist and they would have an argument or we'd have conservative and, and labour or in Scotland you might have a nationalist and somebody who's a, who's a unionist. That's easy, actually. That's great and that's very important. But when you have somebody who is one of the members of the UN Committee on Climate Change and a climate scientist telling you that we're not entirely sure of everything, but we can tell you that global warming is real and it is is going to be dangerous. And you have someone like Nigel Lawson, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, but had a view that this other person was wrong. You have to ask yourself, you know, why, why is that balanced? Is that is that seriously balanced? If you went to the dentist and he said you need a filling and then you came to me and said, I haven't a clue what I'm talking about, but I'll have a look. <laughs> Would, and produce pliers, would you, would you probably go back to the dentist? I think you would. And so I get the idea of balance, but it has to be rethought in terms also of what service are you doing to the viewer balancing somebody who knows what they're talking about with somebody who just has an opinion but doesn't know what they're talking about. And that, that, can, be, that can be very difficult to sort out. I think all broadcasters know that that's a problem, but they understand they've got to think about it. More from Gavin Esler soon. I'm Graham Mack, and this is The Pod 20, a countdown of the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. At number 20 this week, The Daily from The New York Times. There's a lot going on in the USA right now, which is probably why The Daily has made it into this week's chart. At 19, Scarlett Moffat wants to believe. Conspiracy-obsessed Scarlett Moffat attempts to uncover the truth, but can she convince her non-believing boyfriend, Scott? At 18, Eden's End from Sean Williamson. You probably know Sean best as Barry from EastEnders. And this podcast is a drama that he's written. Tell me more about it, Sean. So Eden's End basically is about hop pickers. Now, they used to, uh, Londoners used to flock into my county of Kent to pick hops during the summer, particularly, the you know, poor Londoners, because it was a way of getting their kids out of the smoke, into the fresh air, and they could pick hops, earn money on a farm, hop farm. In and around the area where I live, which is the sort of Maidstone district, right in the middle of Kent, 
there are still uh, many hop farms. Unfortunately, most of them are now fallow or are certainly uh, picked by machines. Uh, the Londoners don't come down anymore. I-, I was in a pub one day in a village on the outskirts of, of Maidstone, and on the wall were just these pictures of these really tough-looking women and raggedy children posing for the camera whilst, you know, picking their hops. And I thought, there's a story there, you know. So I wrote a story about it's it's the outbreak of the war it's a couple of days before war starts a family two families are coming down to a hop farm in kent to pick hops the men traditionally then went back to work during the week in london and came back down and rejoined their families at the weekend so during the week the women and children were on their own a young girl goes missing no one knows what's happened to her it's one of the village girls the suspicion falls on, is it the local travelling community? Is it one of the hot pickers? Is it one of the locals? And they think about going back to London, but of course they're waiting for the bombs to fall. We didn't know then there was going to be a phony war of, of a year, what they called the phony war, before the first blitz. So they expected, we forget this, they evacuated children before the war even started, and then they brought them back when they thought nothing was going to happen, and then they had to re-evacuate them. Right. So it's, it's during these uncertain times. No one knows what's going to happen. London's going to get blown up. So basically, the women and children have to stay down there with this with this missing girl and, and, and maybe a possible child abductor at large. And it's really how that all pans out. The locals are having affairs. You know, there's all sorts of shenanigans. So while it is a sort of murder mystery, it, it's also got a heart. There are moments of comedy and... Uh, you know, we're just, we're just trying to recreate that time, you know, before the war really kicked in and everything changed. How many episodes is it? Well, there's five in this form. You see, I, I wrote it as a TV script. Right. And it very nearly got made. It was called Town and Country initially. And it very nearly got picked up by ITV. And it was so close. I can't tell you. It was heartbreaking. So I got together with Sam Stuckle, the producer of Viola Films. And he said, how about turning it into a, a sort of radio uh, serial? So we did this for BBC Radio Kent. Was that Gordon uh, Davidson? Was Gordon Davidson at Radio Kent? Did he okay that? He was the managing editor there for a while. I think he's still there. Yeah, I'm sure he is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's he's yeah. he's done some quite innovative stuff on BBC uh, Radio Kent. We've got John Holmes on there and things like that. So, so for him to take a punt on that, well, that, that was great. Yeah, so, so so the idea is hopefully, I think it might need a, a rewrite and maybe, uh, you know, uh, some, some trimming here and there and, and this and that and that. BBC Radio 4 is, is the ultimate. Um, we, we, we very much like them to get their hands on it. Yeah. And if they want a rewrite or a recast, that's up to them. We're, we're proud of it the way it is, but, you know, we called in a lot of favours. There were some amateur actors in it who did a brilliant job. Yeah. So we, 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 we sort of brought it all in on a very tight budget. We're very proud of it. But if BBC 4 are listening... <laughs> <laughs> Give Sean yeah. a call. So, yeah, we've got a lovely cast there, you know, and uh, we, we was very, very, very pleased with them, the way it turned out, and I just hope people enjoy it. And you'll be able to hear it on podcast radio at 10 a.m. and 2.30 in the afternoon. And it is called Eden's End. Uh, Sean Williamson, it's been great talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Sean Williamson, who will be my special guest in a couple of weeks' time, right here on the Pod 20. At number 17 this week, it's Undiscussable. It's a podcast presented by the former Sky Sports presenter, Charlie Webster. It's all about domestic abuse. Charlie, you were the victim of domestic and sexual abuse growing up. How did that affect you, working in the media? You know, an industry that's had its fair share of bosses who are narcissists and sociopaths. I absolutely love that you've asked this question. I love, 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 right? Because I've thought about this a lot. (laughs) Because to start with, if I'm really honest, and I don't think I'd be able to say these things like say five years ago, I've done like a lot of work on this. In the early days, I think I pushed so hard for my career because I wanted to prove that I could do something extraordinary. You know, because when I first started my career... I mean, I never worked with a woman, ever. (laughs) There weren't any women um, at all. And there definitely weren't any working class women or working hardly any working class people. So it wasn't just about my gender. It was also about where I was from. So I was, you know, I'm from a very poor family as well. So my mum had me as a teenager, um, you know, and so to kind of double up the domestic abuse, we also had nothing, 
So, and people where I was from, I was told, this is absolutely not the case, but I was told as a child, didn't amount to anything and weren't anything. So I think it was like this twofold thing where I was like, you know, somebody from a poor background, you know, I was the first person in my family to be educated, to get an education ever in the whole generations. So I think I had this like a massive chip on my shoulder. If I'm really honest, I did. I had like one on ear and one on ear. In a way though, in a, in a, in a bizarre way, it probably helped you though. Yeah, it did. Because you have to be tough to get on in the business you're in. Yeah, it did. It did definitely help me because I, you know, one of my friends at university described me, I've been writing a book and I asked her, what she thought and she described me at university because I did go to university against all odds I paid I got a full-time job as a personal trainer and fitness instructor I used to go to university lectures in my training kit run to the gym teach a class go back to a, a lecture oh my god I think I don't even think I slept and I worked so hard and I was so determined because the thing about people that were brought up like me there's no safety net there's no safety net. So you rely entirely on yourself. Like I knew that if I didn't look after myself, I would fall. So I was my own caretaker. So I worked so hard and I saw, because, you know, I saw running as my way out. And then once my um, coach got put in jail, I just, I couldn't run anymore. It destroyed me. So that escape, that way out disappeared. So then I was like, well, where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to live? At the time I was living with my nan and granddad. What can I do? So I was like, well, oh my God, if I go to university, it means I get, I can, I have another three years to figure this out. I can get an education, get a degree, which nobody else has. So I was like, I'm going to get a degree because nobody else has one in my family. Sorry. And also it gave me accommodation. It gave me three years of accommodation because I wouldn't have had anywhere to live. So that was, it was kind of the answer to me, but going back to your question. So initially it was all this, like it was out of determination. So yeah, going back to what I was saying, my friend described me as, you know, I've got your back. I'm extremely loyal. You can come along for the ride, but you know, if you don't go in my path and bye type thing, that's what my friend described me as. <laughs> so I wasn't horrible in any way, but I was very, 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 very determined and I was never going to waver off that path. And I also found it very difficult to trust people. And because of that, my relationships, both intimate and with friends, only went so far. So I had a lot of friends because, you know, I was I was quite I was good fun. I was a good ear to talk to. I went out all the time. I burnt the candle massively. You know, I was very kind of extroverty in a way, in my behavior, but inside I was very, I was an introvert inside. And so you, you were allowed to kind of come this far up to me. So, you know, the, you know, but then there'd be a big barrier that you weren't allowed to step over. But you know what? It actually caused me a lot of damage. So, you know, we were saying about how it was a good thing in the sense of my career because it made me very, very thick skinned. You know, nothing anybody could ever say to me was as bad as what used to happen to me at home or what used to happen to me by my running coach. So none of it bothered me. None of it fazed me because you know what? I was almost used to it and it was almost comfortable for me because it was more uncomfortable for me to be in a situation where it was nice because it made me very nervous about it because I suspected there you know, uh, uh, well, this this isn't safe because if somebody's been nice, it means something's about to happen. And it's really common with people that are brought up in abuse. It's something I've been speaking about on social media, in fact. I try and help people in my podcast, Undiscussable. Um, I was part of a trauma group for two years. It was It's really, really common for kids that are brought up in that situation to find situations of safety as an adult, including intimate relationships, very, very scary. And that's what happened to me. I was almost like a horse with blinkers on. I could just push, I could push. I didn't care what anybody thought. I didn't care if people thought a woman shouldn't do this. I would just, it was like putting a red rag to a ball. I'd just prove them wrong. For example, I was the first woman in the world to host boxing and host a heavyweight world title fight. You know, the first time I walked into that office to ask if I could get involved in boxing, I was told that a woman couldn't do boxing. I was told that an audience wasn't ready for a woman to be involved in boxing. Do you know what that said to me? <laughs> It said, go and prove us wrong. Yeah. So I did. 
But then the problem was when I achieved that goal, then I had to achieve another goal. Okay, it wasn't enough. And that's something I needed to change because I never felt like it was good enough. I always felt like I was a failure. Charlie Webster, whose podcast is called Undiscussable and is at number 17 this week on the Pod 20. My special guest is the former Newsnight presenter, Gavin Esler. Gavin, you're also a best-selling author. In 2012, you published a book called Lessons from the Top, How Leaders Succeed Through the Power of Stories. What are these stories and why are they so important? What happened was I was trying to think. I'd met so many, lead, uh, you know, uh, Blair, Clinton, Thatcher, Angela Merkel, Dolly Parton, who features quite heavily in the book because she's a great storyteller. Lots and lots of people. And I tried to figure out how is it that some people connect and some people don't. I mean, there's some, there's some very bright people who go into politics and they don't quite connect with uh, the general public. And I realised that there's three basic stories and every single one of the successful leaders tell those same three stories. And they are, who am I as a person? Who are we as a group? And then if you're still listening, they can tell you where we're going with this. What, what that leader is going to do. So, for example, Mrs. Thatcher, I'm just the grocer's daughter from Grantham. Bill Clinton, I'm the boy from Hope. And uh, Donald Trump, I'm the greatest billionaire business person in the entire world. Now, this can be entirely fictitious, but it's always only part of the story. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher was many more things than the grocer's daughter from Grantham, but that's the story she wanted to tell. Bill Clinton, when I first bumped into him, and literally bumped into him, he was out jogging, he said, I'm just the boy from Hope, Hope, Arkansas being the town that he came from. Now, there's many other things you could say about these leaders, but that's the one little nugget they wanted to get in your brain. And then where, who are we? Well, you know, Mrs. Thatcher redefined both the Conservative Party and the country and Bill Clinton. You know, we're not the old Democrats. We are the new Democrats. And Tony Blair did the same thing and others. And then if you're still listening, as I say, you might listen to their policies. And one of the problems with some politicians who lose, Hillary Clinton's one, Ed Miliband's another, whatever the greatness or otherwise of the policies, the, the third bit if they haven't really sold you the idea of who they are in a way that you like, everybody knew who Hillary Clinton was, but she was very divisive and many people didn't like her. I, don't, I personally don't think people really knew who Ed Miliband was. I mean, he's a very bright, bright guy. Maybe he would have been a good prime minister or a bad prime minister. But nobody listened to his 300 policies or whatever they were until he properly connected. And so that, that's what the book's about. As a result of that book, I continue to do lots of speaking to businesses in particular because a lot of businesses are trying to figure out what their identity actually is. And quite often the chief executives want to discuss that as well because all leadership positions are quite difficult and people in business have very much woken up to the fact that just to be able to do a good job isn't good enough. I mean, one of the things I say, and this, this came from a, from a banker, uh, a CEO of a major bank who I was discussing this with. He asked me to come in and chat to him. And he said, oh, he said, I get it. I get it. Um, if hard skills were everything, then Spock would have been commander of the USS Enterprise. <laughs> and I said, Brilliant. that's great. I'm going, to put that in the, I'm going to put that in the book the next time I rewrite it. <laughs> was that Jeremy Corbyn's problem, that he didn't have a great story? No, I think he had a story. I think it was a story that just didn't connect with... with it connected with some people. Uh, you know, he's a bit of a rebel. He's always said the same thing. Other people, looking at exactly the same story, said, yeah, he's always said the same thing since 1970s, but what has he actually done? So I think that was his story. He, he, had, he had a story, but it was one that didn't connect with, obviously, the, the vast majority of the British people. Otherwise, he'd have been prime minister. What's Boris's story? Well, I'll tell you what Boris's story is. Boris's story is, to misquote Oscar Wilde, it's the importance of not being earnest. You know, <laughs> I may not be very good. I, I, I've actually not achieved anything. There are no bridges I've ever built. I bought water cannon that never got fired, that got sold for scrap. I do talk a lot of rubbish, but I'm quite entertaining. I think that's his story. Gavin Esler and more from Gavin later when he'll tell us all about this podcast he's got called The Big Steel. It's all about corruption inside the Kremlin. Back to the chart now and at number 16, Desert Island Discs. At 15, NHS Couch to 5K. It's a running plan designed to get complete beginners from being a couch potato into running a 5K in nine weeks. 
Number 14, the Michael Harrison rap from Michael Harrison. Michael is a broadcasting veteran and the publisher of Talkers magazine in the USA. It's the Bible of talk media. Michael is a friend of mine. In fact, you're one of my favorite septic tanks. I know I sound like some American to you, but um, <laughs> you're the one who sounds funny to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it's, I always wonder, what do Americans sound like to the British? Well, I, I was asked that, uh, do you know B.J. Shea? You know B.J. Shea, he's on in Seattle, he does a morning show there. I was at a convention with him once, and he said to me, he said, uh, he says, why are you English guys over here? You, you must get all the girls. And I said, oh, I don't know, I've been happily married for years, so I don't know, mate. And he said, uh, how do Americans sound to English girls, do you think? And I said, you probably sound like movie stars. That's interesting. <laughs> because we watch so many American movies. Uh, so it probably works the other way, too. Yeah. I have a friend who is British, um, uh, Victoria Jones. Yeah. Uh, she, She's in Washington. You've interviewed yeah. her on your show. Yeah. She's a, um, a correspondent on the Michael Harrison rap. I've known her for about 30 years. We're old friends. And she's hails from uh, the UK, and she's been in this country a number of years. She's got a dual citizenship. She was telling me, and, and, and she and I have been on the radio together in many places. Uh, she's one of my dance partners, as are you. Um, and um, she was making a trip back home to uh, to London, visiting her family. And it was one of those weird coincidences that I had done an interview with the BBC about, about broadcasting. I, and she was going to her brother's house. And when she got to the house, the radio that was on in the background just happened at that moment to be playing the interview with me on the BBC. Brilliant. And she went, oh my gosh, that's Michael Harrison. And she listened. And being back in London with her friends and her family, where she's surrounded by other, you know, English people, she said for the first time, it astonished her, I sounded like a foreigner. And it, 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 you, you follow the psychology of this because yeah. she was back in her own homeland and her own environment. She never noticed when she's in America that I sound like a foreigner <laughs> to the to the British ear, and uh, I, I just think I think as we enter um, this, that, that was fascinating to me. I think as we enter this new era of amazing communications, I mean, look at look at what you and I are doing with you know twelve cents. <laughs> this this would have been a miracle. This would have been science fiction if the, you know this is what was on two thousand one, a space odyssey. Uh, ooh, look at this television. You know, telephones. Um, would you know? This would have taken so much planning back in in twenty years ago, ten, five years ago, five months ago. Look at the Zoom boom. You know, so uh, it, it's amazing. So you're going to hear different dialects. You're going to hear different cultures, and we're all going to become more worldly, less you know, regional. Less provincial is the word I'm looking for. I, and I think that that's very exciting. I do believe that very soon, we already have the technology, but very soon we're going to have seamless universal translators the way they have in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. You ever know, ever wonder how these people come from another world and they speak beautiful English? You know, it's like, what? And then they say, well, it's a universal translator. It's always going on. So you always, it, it just, but the, the idea of going and studying a foreign language is going to seem the same as, as learning multiplication tables so that you can do math. We're going to be able to talk to each other and have it instantly translated by this technology we have. So can you imagine, suppose you and I spoke different languages. We both speak English and, you know, I speak Russian, you speak Chinese, whatever. And we just jump right into this and Zoom is translating it while we're talking. Yeah, It's there now. We already can do it, but it's going to be seamless. It's going to be perfect. Michael Harrison. And you can hear the Michael Harrison rap at 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. every Saturday right here on Podcast Radio. I'm Graham Mack. This is the Pod 20, the countdown of the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Back to the chart in just a sec, but Piper Terrett is on Zoom. She's the host of the Lockdown Lowdown podcast, and you want to know how I'm going with my new gig as an audiobook narrator. Hey, I'm doing a good one right now. It's about a missing Spitfire. Oh, wow. 
from what I can gather, the story is something to do. It sounds like a good story. It sounds like, and I've probably got this all messed up, and it'll, but, but it sounds to me like there's a 98-year-old in a care home yeah. in England, and he's a former Spitfire pilot. Wow. But he's in a blinking care home. Like, no respect for someone who is who was, a, you know, a proper war hero. Yeah. And, like, got to be one of the coolest people that's ever walked the earth. Yeah. He flew Spitfires in the Battle of Britain, you yeah. know? And anyway, some 19-year-old care assistant, whatever, breaks him out. Wow. And there's this mission for something and i'm not sure what it is and he gets to fly a spitfire again and they need his expertise to save the world or something yeah which to me sounds and in two hours yeah it's uh, oh, i'm your man right <laughs> this will be fun yeah so i go to do the audition and there's a note from the author and in this scene that you do because you know, this is acting yeah yeah this, it is, isn't it this yeah. is acting yeah, yeah. You've got the 98-year-old ex-Spitfire pilot and you've got someone called Sam. And the notes from the author are the Spitfire pilot, think Captain Kirk. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm having a hard time thinking of Captain Kirk as being English. Yeah, oh, yes, and surely a, yeah. surely a Spitfire pilot, he's gonna come he's gonna be a bit biggles, isn't it? And chops away. So yeah. Yeah. So I'm having a hard time matching those two in my mind. But yeah. anyway. It says Sam thinks Sam Neil. Sam Neil? Yeah. Now <laughs> the Sam, Sam Neil. Sam Neil, Jurassic yeah. Park. Yeah, yeah. Peaky Blinders. He's got a farm um, or something now, hasn't he? In New Zealand, yeah, he's yeah. got pigs and stuff. He's really yeah. cool. Riley Ace of Spies. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, and I know it's, Sam Neill's a Kiwi. He's yeah. New Zealand. Yes, he's a So his yeah. natural accent is New Zealand, but he's done lots of things. So anyway, so I, I did this audition and I put it up there. And I get this message from the author. Hi, Graham. Really enjoyed that. I found that Tom, that's the Spitfire pilot, sounded way too angry. Ah. Now, I was probably doing a bit of Kirk of like, you know, Kirk could get quite intense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, spark. You know, so, but I was doing it as, uh, I was trying to find a 90-year-old, anyway. Very he says, I found, I, found, I found Tom way too angry. He needs to be softer. Brackets. Listening to your ish audition, it's an easy fix. Just swap Sam and Tom's tone around. Yeah. So at least he's giving me something I can work with. Yeah. Uh, nothing wrong with your take at all. Hard to work from such a tiny description. There were many things I thought were great. It's not always about reading lines, but feeling the roles on the page. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, right. So I did him another one. I sent the second audition off, and I got another note back. Yeah. So now I've swapped them around. So now... The Spitfire pilot's a bit, a bit more. Sad. I was, he's a bit more like that. Yeah. And and the other guy's more angry, and you know. Yeah. Hi, Graham. Fantastic. Oh. It really changed how the scene played out. Hooked me into my own story so much that I forgot that Sam is actually American. <laughs> Back to the countdown now on the pod 20 and we've reached number 13, which is Code Switch from NPR in the USA. New entry this, National Public Radio. It's a fearless conversation about race. And after what's been happening in the USA this week, Code Switch has made it to number 13. At number 12, No Such Thing as a Fish, the podcast from the writers of QI. At 11, Staying at Home with the Williamses. This is Robbie Williams and his missus, Ada Williams, and their homely podcast. Back to the chart soon. Right now, let's check in with my special guest this week, the former presenter from Newsnight, Gavin Esler. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born into a council house in uh, Clyde Bank on the outskirts of Glasgow, number 66 Clarence Street, for those who uh, <laughs> know the area, atop of Kobari Hill, in a house where we shared with my grandmother 
my mother and father and two aunties. So it was a very small house and um, in an area where the shipyards were closing and it was somewhat difficult. And uh, at age three weeks, I nearly died and had an operation in an NHS hospital. And from the moment that I was old enough to notice that I got a scar on my belly, my grandmother used to tell me, you know, you're a very lucky son because if you'd been born in my generation before the NHS was founded, you'd be dead because nobody could have afforded to have the operation. So if there was one thing that sort of stuck with me, it's absolutely that, which is that the NHS has got, you know, its problems, it's got its difficulties with coronavirus, it's got its flaws, it's not, I don't think it's uh, very bureaucratic, unfortunately, we've got some great people in it, but at the very top, it's not very well organised. But uh, those kind of things, those things that we do together, make our country great. And if we can continue to do that, that is how Britain will prosper in the future. And if we fail to do that, despite, you know, clapping nurses on a Thursday night is great, it's lovely, but we should pay them more. And doctors and everybody else in the health service, in my view. So how did you go from that background to a career in, first of all, in newspaper journalism? Because you were the first one in your family to go to university. Yeah, I was. I was very lucky. I got a, my parents moved to Edinburgh and I managed to pass an exam to get scholarships in, in a great school in Edinburgh. And then I was going to be a doctor because of actually what I've just told you about nearly dying age three weeks. And uh, the very last minute I decided, you know, I'm doing a lot of writing. I want to be a writer. I want to be a journalist. And I went off to university and, and did English and then a, a Irish literature. So I decided that that was absolutely what I wanted to do. I wanted to write, communicate, and I didn't actually think I wanted to be in television. I thought I'd prefer newspapers. So I got a job with what was called Thompson Newspapers at the time, and they offered me a job in Edinburgh on The Scotsman. And I said, uh, I grew up there. It's... um, lovely place but it's a little bit boring can I go to Belfast because it's the nearest to Glasgow I could get and uh, so I went to Belfast during the Troubles which was I mean Belfast is an amazing place I love it dearly I go back there several times a year and uh, I'm actually should be going this summer but uh, I don't think I will be now because of coronavirus. Any hairy moments reporting during the Troubles? Yeah one, one or two I had my car hijacked in a almost comic situation when uh, there was a big funeral in West Belfast, an IRA funeral, and I was filming there and was going up to a monastery to interview a local priest when a complete lunatic from a Protestant paramilitary came in and started shooting at people in the funeral. And it all went completely crazy. And uh, anyway, I went with my film crew to interview the priest as we were supposed to be doing, finished doing the interview and came out and there were, how can I put this... There were four men who I had reason to believe were members of an Irish Republican paramilitary organisation who stopped us as we were driving out and they said, we need your car. And I said, you don't hijack journalists' cars. And one of them said to me, this is not your car. Your car is a blue Ford. This is a hire car. It's a commercial vehicle. <laughs> so we had... We had <laughs> I couldn't make this up. Uh, we had a disagreement over whether I was driving a commercial vehicle or whether I wasn't. And for various reasons, which I, I won't entirely go into, I lost the argument because the car keys had disappeared from the car by that time. So they got in the car and drove off. I, that was interesting. Looking back in it, it was almost comic to have this kind of... But you can't do that. It's a commercial vehicle. Yeah, it sounds like a Monty Python sketch where you, you're debating something so... <laughs> the minutiae of the situation rather than the the uh, gravity of the situation. When Belfast is, is erupting all around us, looking back on it, that's one of the things about Belfast that, and Northern Ireland and Ireland in general that, that, that I like. I was never directly, personally threatened by people who did some very, very bad things. And it was a very, very, very odd to have that kind of confrontation with people who were up to no good, really. Gavin Esler. More from Gavin in just a sec. 
Let's keep going with the chart. It's the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio. At number 10, Off the Menu with Ed Gamble and James Acaster. The comedians Ed and James invite special guests into their magical restaurant to choose their favourite starter, main course, side dish, dessert and drink. At number 9, Today in Focus from The Guardian newspaper. And before we get into the top 8, let's zoom again with this week's special guest, former Newsnight presenter and host of the Big Steel podcast, Gavin Esler. How did you get into broadcasting? I got a job with the BBC in Belfast and then it was kind of interesting because the BBC has always been very nervous about Northern Ireland. It's very, very difficult to cover because it's a very divided place. And when even British government ministers come in, they make such a fool of themselves sometimes. I mean, we had Karen Bradley, the most recent Northern Ireland secretary, who admitted she didn't understand that unionists and nationalists didn't vote for the same people. I mean, after 30 years and 3,500 deaths, it's just extraordinary. So because I had some local knowledge, because I'd been there for for a while, um, when Newsnight wanted some coverage from there, I did some stories for them. They liked it. And uh, I got a job there and then moved on to the United States. You were the uh, the chief North American correspondent based in Washington during the George Bush senior and the Clinton administration. How different is American politics now? <laughs> well, I spent one year of my life on one lie, and the lie was I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. That was Bill Clinton. Now we have a president who, and don't take my word for it, if you log in and look at Washington Post Trump lies, you'll find that he's t- told about 18,000 lies in the 100 days of the presidency. He started by telling by their calculation, about a dozen lies, falsehoods or uncorrected mistruths or misstatements a day. And he's more recently, since he's seeking re-election and coronavirus, doing more than 23 a day. So that's one an hour. I mean, you know, frankly, the man is a workaholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you lived there for a long time. You must have got a feel of the vibe. Was it a surprise to you when Trump got in? No, because I blow my own trumpet. In the late 1990s, at the end of the Clinton period, when everything was going all right, you know, unipolar world, America was the one superpower, GDP per capita was huge, home ownership was up, unemployment was way down, everything from hip hop to Hollywood movies had taken the world, you know, American culture, then Apple and Google and so on. Everything was going well. And I traveled around a total of 48 states and everywhere I went, Basically, middle-income people said, things are terrible. I I can't make ends meet. It was best summed up by a cop in uh, Annapolis, Maryland, who told me, uh, you know, Bill Clinton says he's created 11 million new jobs. He has, and I've got five of them. Actually, I've only got four, but my wife's got one. What he meant was he worked for five days in a row as a cop, and then on his three days off, off shift, he worked as a security guard for each of those days for different, different companies. Because you know, the social and economic divisions in America were quite obvious then. So I wrote a book called The United States of Anger, saying why, why, why is it in this great country that I love, and everything I read about it seems to be going well, but everything I hear about it when I go around America and the kind of anecdotal is not good. And so while I didn't include Trump in it, the anger that I talked about in the book is the kind of thing that, you know, things aren't going well, what's gone wrong here, is why Trump is president of the United States. And uh, looking back on it, uh, I I didn't predict it, I'm not, not saying that, but I did say in the book that if something isn't done to fix the way ordinary people, by ordinary people, I mean, just, you know, the average person in the street in America, who are the most hospitable, decent people, but they are incredibly worried about healthcare, lack of, fact that if you get sick you lose your you may lose your job you lose your health insurance and you lose your home you know for all our problems in the united kingdom we don't have that yeah i think it's the number one cause of bankruptcy in the united states is is not being able to pay your medical bills which in a western society is disgraceful for that to be a statistic yeah and also you know the amount they spend per head on healthcare is almost twice what we spent. One of the things I used to say, if I really, if I really wanted to do, annoy Trump supporters, which I do sometimes, is to say, you realise that in terms of children dying around the time of birth, the United States record is worse than Cuba's. 
And then they usually go off on one. And I say, no, no, I'm not making this up. If you want to check, I got it from the CIA website. So I have a look. It's, I mean, I haven't looked recently, but it's the CIA does a world comparison of healthcare outcomes, among other things. And if you look at it, Cuba and uh, perinatal mortality rates, you'll find out that Cuba is doing better than the richest country in the world. Americans seem to be in denial about the cost of healthcare there. They think we pay a lot more and our taxes are sky high. I once, when I first started out in radio, I was a disc jockey on a, on a breakfast show and I subscribed to an American comedy service where they wrote jokes for you. And I ended up not being able to use any of them because they were so American. One of the jokes was, it was when, um, it was when Hillary during the Clinton administration was talking about bringing in a universal healthcare or at least something better than they had. And the joke was, if you think healthcare is expensive now, wait till it's free. <sighs> they were basically saying that insurance premiums would go up, you know, and that told me a lot about America at the time. With the George Bush Jr. administration, I was interviewing a lawyer who advised George, George W. Bush about Guantanamo Bay. And something went wrong with the camera, or um, we, we stopped anyway. And during the break, he turned to me. This is a very, very smart, very, very expensive, well-connected Washington, D.C. lawyer. And he turned to me and he said, tell me about your death panels. And I said... I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, you know, the people in England who decide whether you live or die. And I'm thinking, I, don't, I really don't know. What he'd heard on Fox News was that the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, NICE, which is the people who say this drug is worth the NHS spending money on, this one, maybe the outcomes aren't so good, we won't, we won't license that one yet. He, Fox News called them death panels. My special guest, Gavin Esler. I'm Graham Mack, counting down the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. We're up to number eight, which is Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Lockdown Parenting Hell. At seven, it's the Joe Rogan Experience, the podcast that's worth $100 million. That's what Spotify paid for it. Number six, The Big Steal, the story of the largest theft of the biggest country's resources by a clique of men associated with the Kremlin. Gavin Esler, why did you decide to do this as a podcast rather than a book or a TV documentary? Partly because I was asked. I was talking to Fresh Air Production, who were a great podcast company, who won lots and lots and lots of awards. And we were talking about... There was a court judgment a, a couple of years ago about UCOS... Yukos was the biggest oil company in Russia, and essentially it was, and this is the court judgment, it was stolen from the people who owned it, the investors and so on, and the, the proceeds sort of disappeared into people associated with the Kremlin and others. And the initial judgment was that there should be, at a court in the Netherlands, these folk should be compensated by the Russian state for $50 billion. So, I'd never really heard of this and we talked about it. And as it happens, during the year where we were making the podcast series, this all went to appeal. And in February 2020, that judgment was upheld. Now, I don't think Vladimir Putin is going to raid the Kremlin piggy bank and start paying out $50 billion. But that gives you a sense of some of the things that have been going on in Russia since the fall of communism. So we talked to a number of people, everybody from former chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov, to Russian opposition figures, to people involved in UCOS. And the other part of that story is that it, UCOS tells the story in a way of how Russia went from communism to what we call a kleptocracy, because so much money has been stolen. And one figure at the centre of that is a guy called Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who lives in London now, in exile. But you may remember him because he was the guy who transformed UCOS from a, a, essentially state-owned assets to one of the biggest oil companies in the world. And he ended up in a cage in a courtroom in Russia on a, a show trial. And the reason he ended up in the cage was because on TV, uh, along with a group of very rich Russians, there was a big TV discussion with Vladimir Putin about how to take the country forward. And Khodorkovsky, 
very unwisely, as it turned out, said, Mr. President, you know, there's a lot of people who are corrupt in your government. It'd be a great idea if you do something about it. And three months or four months later, he did do something about it. He put Khodorkovsky in a cage and he went through the, tr- the trial process. And Khodorkovsky, I think, served nine years in jail and is now out. So we pieced all this together and decided that Russia is such a great country with such brilliant people, but has gone on a very, very strange path. And it is very dangerous for its neighbours. It's not a great neighbour. If you're in Crimea, you were annexed. If you're Ukraine, you've been attacked. If you're flying over Russia, MH17, a Malaysian airliner was shot down. If you're living in London, you might wonder why Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned by polonium. Or if you live in uh, Salisbury, what happened to the Skripals when there was a nerve agent that was used and it didn't, fortunately didn't kill them. So we tried to piece all those bits together. But in terms of true crime because it is possibly the biggest crime in terms of money ever and some of the people we've talked to have said that you're talking about the richest person in the world no not jeff bezos not amazon but vladimir putin is putin a criminal well he's not been convicted as far as i know in fact he is trying to arrange things so that he may stay in power till 2036 So, you know, he is the most powerful Russian leader since Stalin. Stalin, of course, was never a criminal. (laughs) But he did do some things which uh, were courts able to review Stalin's history. They might assume that he was, uh, might convict him. So uh, Putin has never been convicted of anything. So he's not, um, he is not technically a criminal. But there evidence of him being involved in what is a pattern of corruption is quite great. And Gary Kasparov said to me, you know, every state has its mafia. In Russia today, unfortunately, the mafia has its own state. What's Putin's story? Well, Putin's fascinating, actually. I mean, he's quite an extraordinary person. He grew up fairly poor in the Soviet Union. He joined the KGB. He rose to become a colonel and was based in Dresden. Now, Dresden was not a glamour posting in the Cold War. And one of those we talked to, Mark Galliotti, who's studied Putin, written a book about Putin, uh, I said to him, but he was a kind of James Bond figure. He said, no, 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 he wasn't James Bond. He was more like Miss Moneypenny. (laughs) He then went back to St. Petersburg, to Leningrad, and was a political fixer, was underestimated by many of the people that he worked with. They knew he was very effective at doing things, but they kind of thought he was a backroom boy. And then because they underestimated him, perhaps, and because he's very smart, he's very tough, he's very ruthless, and he's also a judoku. He's a, he's a, his judo is his big thing. And he's very often used his enemy's strength against them, including the West, frankly. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that I was intrigued by this was the extent to which our information is corrupted or may be corrupted by sources in Russia. And it affects, you know, as we know, uh, things that were on the record. Hillary Clinton's emails just happened to come out during the US presidential election campaign. And there was nothing in them. And there was, well, you, <laughs> yeah, I, I, didn't, I, I looked at them. It's not quite, you know, have you put the cat out kind of things, but it wasn't all that interesting, but it, it helped uh, cost her the presidency. And what was interesting was if you go back through the history of the KGB, the KGB has always been interested in disinformation. Keep your enemies, this is where the judo thing comes in, off balance. Hannah Arendt, the German writer and philosopher, once wrote, the totalitarian mindset is not that of a confirmed Nazi or a confirmed communist. It is of those people who cannot anymore tell the difference between fact from falsehood or fiction. That is actually one of the dilemmas of our age. When you hear or see something, is it fake news? Is this right? Can this be true? What What is going on here? And that keeps us all off balance. And that's something which democracies have to be particularly careful about. Gavin Esler. And the podcast is called The Big Steal. It's number six this week on the pod 20. The top five looks like this. At number five, we will get past this. Join Sandy Toxvig for a perusal through her room of books. Number four, Happy Place from Fern Cotton. Three, Shagged, Married, Annoyed, Chris and Rosie Ramsey. At two, 
about race with Rennie Edu Lodge, the podcast from the author behind the best-selling Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And at number one this week, for the sixth week in a row, Grounded with Louis Theroux. That's it for this episode of the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio. I'm Graham Mack, and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Gavin Esler, Michael Harrison, Charlie Webster, Piper Terrett, Sean Williamson. My guest next week is the multi-award winning actor and the star of MASH for 11 seasons, Alan Alder. He's also the host of a podcast called Clear and Vivid. That's right. That's right. And I love it. I talk to so many interesting people. I have, you know, we've done over a hundred shows so far. My favorite, and I was scared to listen to it. It popped up on my phone and it said, Alan Alder and Tom Hanks. Oh. And I thought, I was almost scared to listen to why, it why? in case it wasn't as good as, as I, th- I mean, you know, two of my favorite people ever uh, <laughs> together. And I was almost scared in case it didn't live up to how I imagined how great it would be. And it really was terrific, you know, when you got onto the typewriters. and he's a great guy. He's a wonderful guy, as as was Paul McCartney. Yeah, heard that one too. That That was the week before, I think, or the week after. Very close together, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, And, you know, we talk about communication in general on the show, communication and relating to other people. And not necessarily with regard to science, but sometimes I talk to Nobel Prize winners and I do my best to have a conversation that's in plain talk. But everybody has a way of communicating. And I'm so curious to know the, how the good communicators do it, like, like Paul McCartney. How does he write a song? He writes a song maybe in a few minutes or a few days and the rest of the world is humming it for 50 years. How does that happen? <laughs> yeah. And he was so kind and generous. He he went over to, to a piano that happened to be in the studio, and he started writing a song right in front of me. It was great. Yeah. But but we have I have wonderful conversations with so many people. Alan Alder, special guest star next week on the Pod 20. And what will happen on the podcast chart next week? Will Louis Theroux still be number one and make it seven weeks at the top? Or will your favourite podcast knock him off? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart yourself by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.